Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. We speak with Adam Davidson, CEO of Trident Royalties. They're a small new royalty company who've decided to list in London. We ask why. And if you want to get our opinion on that and other things that we discussed, you can get that on cruxinvestor.com forward slash club. We can also get company reports, commentary from market experts from around the world, training videos, summaries of other interviews that we've done. Of course, there is a thriving community of like-minded investors sharing their thoughts and ideas with each other. And if you go now, there's a seven-day free trial. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, Adam, how are you doing? Uh, very good. How are you? Yeah, lovely. Uh, thanks for joining us. Uh, we've not spoken before. We're going to hear another royalty story. We love a royalty story, I have to say. So um, and where are you today? Where are you based? Uh, so I'm based in Denver. Okay. Listed in London, based in Denver. You got to tell us that story in a minute. Why don't we kick off and give us the uh, one minute overview first, and then I'll pick it up from there. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so the, the, the sort of quick spiel on Trident is we're uh, London listed, as you said, royalty company, uh, mining royalty company specifically. We don't we don't dabble in other resources or, or outside of mining. Um, and uh, we're building a portfolio that, that's diversified. And I suppose that's really our differentiating factor is we're looking to build a portfolio that's probably reflective of the sector by commodity. So the ultimate intent is that a, a shareholder can have a single share of, of Trident and have exposure to the full suite of mining commodities, almost an index fund-like allocation. Um, yeah, because I think what the precious peers have shown is that uh, the the royal or yeah the royalty approach in terms of getting your exposure to mining commodities um, that resonates with investors. But then sort of the next natural question is what what can I hold that gives me exposure to the to the sector um, from a royalty perspective and. And that's what's lacking, uh, particularly from a growth sort of perspective. So, so that's what we're building. And off to a good start, we've we've got um, precious metals exposure, base metals exposure, um, and bulk commodity exposure. So we're um, we're off to a good start in that regard. Brilliant. Okay. So I want to talk to you about your business plan. I always talk to people about the business plan, what's going on up here, and what you've set out to um, do. Yeah. You've done a couple of things which seem counter <clears throat> counterintuitive from the conversations that we've had. One, list in London. London's not really well known for royalties okay if the the company that is on there doesn't want to be on there it wants to list in north america and most people target precious metals so you got to talk us through why you set out to be counterintuitive in that sense yeah sure yeah so i think we, we get the why london question quite a bit um and i suppose it was probably a bit harder to answer when we did our our raise and our listing back in june but um but hopefully now we're able to point to, you know, London started the year with just one listed royalty company, a mining royalty company. Now it has two. Wheaton has announced that they intend to do a list in London. So they obviously see value there. The Ghanaian government is IPOing their portfolio of gold royalties. They've selected London, uh, have publicly said they're going to target doing that before the end of the year. So, yeah, London started the year with one mining royalty company. will will ostensibly end the year with four mining royalty companies. So yeah, clearly not a, not a bad place to to exercise the business model. And then from our from our own perspective, we listed sort of just under four months ago. Uh, we've announced five transactions since that time. You know, we're seeing good liquidity. The share price is up sort of any given day, forty to fifty percent from the IPO prices. We announced deals. Most importantly, we're seeing a response by the market, both with regards to liquidity and trading of the stock, as well as obviously a, a price response, which is encouraging. But the liquidity is really the key thing in that regard. Well, yeah, always. But 
wasn't the easier passage just to North American, whether it be uh, New York or Canada. It's really well understood. It's much, much bigger market if you're talking about liquidity. Um, and it's a better better understood product from that regard. So why discount it? You're based in Denver. No, that's right. I think um, we wanted to differentiate ourselves from the sort of typical precious metals TSX path. I mean, because as you flagged, there, there's sort of a new one every other month, actually, this year, um, executing on that strategy. Uh, and we recognize that comes with some differences. For example, we'll likely be valued on our cash flow multiples, whereas sort of some of our peers on the TSX, they can get away with um, yeah, having a portfolio of development excitement that they can go out and market and they'll, they'll get good liquidity off the back of that. That's probably not going to be the case for us in London. But equally, we're also we're not buying precious metals royalties, paying one or 1.1 times NAV. Uh, and, and then expecting to be valued at 1.5 or two times NAV. We're buying our producing royalties uh, at uh, sort of 0.6 NAV and our development stage royalties at you know 0.1 to, to 0.3. Um, you know, so if we get valued at one times, we're getting a commensurate style uplift. Um, but, uh, but I think on much sort of sounder fundamental footing. Okay, so let's take a look at some of the, the numbers there and some of the leverage that you're discussing. Okay, you raised a little bit of money um, back in May, 16 million bucks. What did you think that was going to allow you to do? Because if I look, have a look at the, um, the, the, the nature of the portfolio, you, you're right, you're, you're focusing on some producing assets that you may be picking up cheaply, uh, not so much on exploration. So these are costing you a lot. You're going to have to need, you're going to need to raise some money quite soon, aren't you? No, not necessarily. And actually, this is where some of the precious guys have done kind of the hard legwork um, for us. You know, if you look at sort of Metalla, for example, um, you know, I think I think we've raised more than they have. Um, but they they you know use their script. Um, they draw on debt, and it's those sort of things. We we obviously we got a debt mandate in place with Tribeca. We've deployed some of our capital. We still have a fair amount. Um, on the balance sheet, we've also uh, we're obviously cash flow positive as well. So we, you know, we've got revenue coming in next month. We'll get our um, our you know Q3 royalty revenue check. Um, so between the ability to use script, the ability to use the cash we have on hand, revenue, you know, tap into debt. I think we've got all the same tools at our disposal. And as you said, we raised 16 million pounds on the fundraise and we had four in the vehicle to begin with. So of all the new royalty companies, we've actually raised the most. So we've got a good amount of deploy deployable capital uh, to build out the portfolio. Because as, as you know, it's for a royalty company, it's all about building critical mass. And that means multiple assets so that you're valued as a portfolio, diversified portfolio, rather than just sort of a couple assets that are valued individually. Okay, so what does critical mass actually mean to you? What what are the, what are the numbers look like over the next two three years? What do you think you've got to achieve? Yeah, so that's a question we get a lot, and it's obviously a bit nebulous in terms of what critical mass means. But rather than dodge the question, I'll sort of I'll, I'll give you my view. When we cross sort of the the ten million uh, sustainable annual revenue, that's the point where I see the royalty model become self sustaining because then you. You're able to service debt, um, you know, reasonable cost debt at that level. Um, you're able to sort of replace your royalties as, as they wind down. Um, you're able to replace them with new royalties. Uh, you're able to pay a sustainable dividend. Uh, on the portfolio we have at the moment, we see ourselves as sort of being about halfway there. And as I said, still have a lot of cash and uh, potential debt and uh, and script to sort of further build out the portfolio. So we're reasonably confident that with the tools we have in hand at the moment, we, we can cross that threshold and and get to sort of the, the critical mass stage where the model becomes then self-sustaining. Okay, so if I if I look at some of the peers that you have judged yourself against in your deck, there are a lot of the precious metal royalty companies in there. 
yet you're claiming to yeah. be different from them. So how do I get a real view of what you what the potential is here for, uh, for you guys? Because again, if I look at the the one, and I won't name them, um, other royalty company in the UK who's got a similar strategy to you, um, it hasn't really worked. They've kind of reached the level, plateaued, and people have lost interest. Yeah, well, I, th- I think in that particular case, it's just a fundamentally different stage in their life cycle. And they they both got the blessing and the curse of having a really dominant single asset. So, you know, looking at them and saying, well, they get valued at sort of a premium multiple by, by being diversified and all that. I think they're actually still on that journey. Um, we're at the stage now where each additional acquisition that we do uh, is one sort of tangible step forward towards having that critical mass or that that portfolio diversification, um, which is what royalty investors are seeking. So I think, um, you know, in that regard, it's 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 both a, a good and a bad thing. You know, we're able to we're able to point to the precious peers with regards to the business model because in that regard, we're not breaking new ground in terms of you know you start to build up a portfolio, you build up some critical mass, you tap into leverage. Um, you know, and, and, and as I said, you, you sort of build the uh, portfolio to the, the point where you hit that inflection point. Um, you know, that's all been pretty well proven sort of time and again by the precious metals guys. It's just nobody's done it really from the ground up on the diversified side. So that is, I suppose, where we're breaking new ground. Um, but uh, and the proof will be in the pudding and, and things like a like being valued on our cash flow multiples, that sort of thing. Um, that's really going to drive our success. Uh, but we've got a wide opportunity, wide open opportunity set in that regard. So when when we're looking at opportunities, you know, obviously we're, we've talked to how we're, we're not doing sort of precious metals exclusively. So you know, when you actually just look at our first two deals, producing iron ore in Australia, producing copper in Zambia, just falls well and truly outside of the, the purview of all of our listed peers, even the nominally diversified guys, because um, well, because of asset size in those two cases, that you know the, the smallest ticket most of our sort of direct peers have. I think the smallest I've seen uh, our other London listed peer do is 20 million, uh, and, and our deals are sort of falling in the the five to 15 range. It's probably our sweet spot. We're, we're not constrained, obviously, in that regard. But um, but yeah, with regards to asset size, commodity, geography, we're just seeing a wide open, relatively non-competitive opportunity set. Right. Are you, a bit, are you a bit nervous about the market at the moment in the sense that there's a lot of other royalty companies coming to market with varying degrees of you know d- differing strategies? Um, you've got a lot of money slushing around where people who perhaps a year ago would have been when you were deciding whether you wanted to do this or not, I suspect, would have not had that many options. So what do you view your competition as now? Not just necessarily other royalty companies, but other forms of money that your potential clients could go and tap up. Yeah, no, that's a good question because, I mean, as I said, all there are new royalty companies sort of sprouting up like weeds, but but they're all following the precious TSX kind of route. Um, so we're, we're sort of left scratching our heads. And really, that was the genesis for myself and my colleague in Perth was, you know, we were in mining private equity, uh, you know, and the fund we worked at had mining royalties. And for the precious ones, you could toss it out to the to the TSX listed guys and they'll fight over it and they'll, they'll pay full value for them. But we were left sort of, you know, there's not a natural holder of all these non-precious ones. So it, it all sort of circles back to the um, to the, the original strategy and the, and the thesis there. Um, you know, we're seeing in terms of competition, it isn't the other royalty companies by and large. Um, it's it's equity for the most part. When, when the equity markets are, are open to miners, then, um, you know, then, then they'll be able to, to raise money. Um, 
you know, without needing to, to do a royalty. That said, there's a whole, as you know, a whole huge universe of, um, of existing royalties floating out there. And, and we've acquired quite a few in Australia. You know, you look at a place like that just behind Canada in terms of world's biggest mining jurisdiction. But um, unlike Canada, where there's 20 listed royalty codes, there's zero at the moment in Australia. So, you know, a market that's sort of ripe for consolidation. Um, but, you know, one example of, you know, you're not constrained in that regard. And in fact, the precious guys sort of face that issue now with gold is sort of running hot. And do you do you go out there and print deals at these sort of prices or do you sit on your hands for 12, 18 months, which is not a, a fun prospect for a public company? Being diversified, you can be a little bit nimble in that regard. You know, gold's running hot. We've got some good gold exposure at the moment. So maybe we pivot and, and look at base metals and battery minerals. And, you know, we, we can be a little bit nimble in that regard and prioritize where we see the most value at any given time. OK, because we, we've seen a few um a little bit of movement in Australia with people like Mar- Mavericks uh, selling their royalties, people like Vox picking up mm-hmm. other royalties. And if people are selling royalties, they're not usually good royalties or it costs you a lot of money. So you're not going to compete there. You may, we've spoken to people who have got databases of royalties all around the world and they're small royalties really in the scheme of things. So how do you, how do you think you're going to be able to insert yourself in a market where you're going to perhaps piece together packages, some of which are going to be better than others, just to be able to say, well, we, we can build up this critical mass. And as a question that you, you sort of answered earlier. So how, how do you do that with the money you've got available and the competition out there and be, you know, be credible? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a good question. And I think it all does circle back to the strategy. So when you've seen the likes of Mavericks and Metalla bend in packages from from miners, you know, Newmont, Pan American, Kinross, Goldfields, nobody's done that on, on the diversified side yet. Um, so, you know, there, there's opportunity from both the miners as well as P and credit funds like our, there are loads of packages out there that just don't have a natural holder of, of non-precious royalty. So I think that universe is sort of completely wide open and completely untouched. But even just using the deal we announced last week, which was precious metals in Australia, which very well should have been a, a very competitive, expensive royalty to acquire. I mean, it sits over the entirety of a plus million ounce deposit, a growing deposit. The company's flagged there 18 to 24 months from production, flagged that a couple months ago. You know, so and it, it's sort of a, a potential takeout target because it's sort of surrounded by mid tiers producing in the region. If that was in Canada, and it, it would have been gobbled up, God, probably years ago. It was held by a private party and would have been paid multiples of what we paid. I mean, the reality is we picked it up um, because it did fly under the radar of, of most parties. You know, we, we were bidding against family offices in high war that were looking at us. Um, we paid five and a half million. So it is a substantive royalty. I mean, we see this thing potentially ramping up to 100,000 ounces a year sort of producer. Um, it's a standalone project in its own right, but you know, it, it will expand. Uh, the company's already stated on the drilling since they've announced a resource that the asset's going to grow. So 100,000 ounces a year, one and a half percent NSR. It's a plain vanilla, clear royalty uncapped, sits over the entirety of the project at spot gold prices. That's three million a year uh, in, in pre-tax revenue. Um, you know, if you sort of say a 10 year life on that, we're repaid within the first couple of years, then eight years and, and all the upside that goes conveys with that being a royalty. So, I mean, these opportunities are still out there. As I said, if, it, if we were fighting for a similar royalty in Nevada, probably, well, probably wouldn't be in existence anymore or you'd be paying multiples of what we paid. But in other jurisdictions, if they're available in Australia, then they're certainly available in other jurisdictions outside of Australia as well. OK, so I want to come back to that point, um, actually, in a second, but I just want to finish off on the, on the whole area of you know, how you package this together. 
together. There's a, a old phrase over here in the UK called saying, which says, uh, "Where there's muck, there's brass." Is it a case of you're playing in an area that very few people want to pay in, play in because they don't believe it works? And because you do believe it works, there's going to be less competition and you've got a chance of making some kind of return, some kind of value creation um, can, can be achieved if you do what you do right. I, I think it's partially that. And I think it's also, I mean, there's some big market cap companies in the royalty space, but it's easy to lose sight of the fact that if you were on the clock 10 or maybe 10 or 12 years, there'd be what, two, two names, maybe three. You know, and so now it's 20 and now that, you know, you've got tens of billions in market cap attributable to those companies, but royalties were born out of North America, precious metals. And unsurprisingly, you know, it, it's still very North America, precious metals focused. So I, I don't think it naturally means that it doesn't work in other commodities. Cause I think, I think it does. You can, you can, you can get amazing royalties outside of, of precious metals, but I think, um, yeah, and whether it's us or somebody else, I don't doubt that there'll be a plus billion dollar market cap uh, diversified mining royalty company in the near future. Um, so I think the opportunity sets out there. It's just an industry that's still somewhat in its adolescence. Um, it's easy to lose sight of that because there are some big players in the space, but um, but it's still a growing, evolving society, uh, growing and evolving sort of sector in the mining finance landscape. And actually, places like Australia, the royalties that exist there typically aren't because they're part of mining finance packages funding construction, which is what you see in North America. They typically are. Um, you know, assets that were, were born out of M&A or, or, you know, in the case of the Lake Rebecca royalty that we just acquired, it was it was from the geologist that pegged that ground 10 plus years ago and, and held a royalty over it. So, yeah, so it's still an evolving and growing part of the mining finance landscape. Um, but but yeah, I don't think um, I don't think that it's necessarily the model has been proven not to work on a diversified basis. I think it just hasn't been tried in the same way that it has for the precious guys in, in recent years. But it doesn't help that the precious guys talk the language of spinning out any non-precious metal assets into other projects because it, it's diluting their ability to create value with the precious metal components. Okay, so there's a lot of them saying that, that a lot, and that's a lot of white noise that you're going to come up against. And that's why I'm pushing you on it. I want, I want to understand what your rebuttal is yeah. to that, okay? Give me some actual reasons why you think it's going to work. Well, I think it does come back to the to the valuations because I think you, you've seen it. I mean, if you look at some of our peers, and I won't name them, but if, if you look at their recent transactions and they're they're buying royalties at a loss leading basis and, and are relying on sort of gold price or line life extensions for upside, that's um, that's a, well, that's just a different model from us. And then they they can potentially do that because they're getting valued at sort of a premium sort of multiples. But and I don't expect that we'll be getting valued at sort of 2x or 3x like Wheaton is, you know, but we're buying royalties on sounder fundamentals. As I said, producing royalties, at sort of 0.6. So we don't we don't need that. We just need to be valued at sort of a 1x and, and we're looking pretty good. Okay, fine. So it comes down to the math. You mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, the Australian project, you think it could get up to 100,000 ants a year producer. On what basis are you guys qualified to work out what the management of these companies is saying is true? Uh, well, I mean, it sort of falls back to our experience. I mean, we, we've obviously got technical backgrounds. We've got a board that's got technical and legal and, and mining finance backgrounds. So, you know, we've been doing this all for a long time. Um, you know, and as I mentioned, my former former uh, employment was in, in mining finance, uh, so in mining private equity. So this isn't our sort of for, first rodeo uh, in that regard. Um, and obviously we, we tap into the right consultants. So, you know, when we looked at the copper royalty in, in Africa, 
um, you know, that's a sediment hosted copper deposit, um, you know, outside of uh, some sort of legacy mining in Europe. That's sort of the one region of the world that has that specific uh, type of deposit. So you go out to consultants that are experienced in that sort of technical um, technical uh, aspects. And um, but in that sense, we're no different than any other uh, any other royalty company. You know, you've got your in-house resources and where needed, you sort of tap into external resources, which is which is not uncommon. Yeah. But, you know, they, they don't always get it right. And, you know, when, and when you start off, you want to get it right more often than you get it wrong. And you certainly want to get the time and predicting the timing uh, correctly. See, I, I buy your uh, rationale for the, the, the economics in terms of the valuation and so forth. But right now, you, you've got to take lower risk projects on or, or projects that are more likely to succeed. So is that how do you go about identifying them? Yeah, I mean, part of it is we're prioritizing cash flowing royalties or, or near term cash flowing royalties. Um, because our, our peers in the precious space, those have been well and truly sort of picked over in the precious space. So they're going further down the development cycle. So, but when you're, you know, look at our first royalty, it's operated by a, a ASX listed major in Australia, you know, existing royalty that is paying and has a history. They've invested 120 million into expanding the assets. So they're allocating capital, which is pushing it down the cost curve. It just ticks all those boxes and a very defensive asset. And it's that kind of profile that obviously is is sort of popping up on our register. And because these haven't been tapped into in a meaningful way by by competitors because they're they're outside precious metals or they're outside North America, that opportunity set is is still relatively wide open to us. Um, so yeah, we're, we're able to find opportunities that are defensive in that regard. And and you know, specific to the gold asset uh, that you'd asked about. You know, in that case, you're looking at an asset, a very well understood region, well, the most prolific gold region in the world. Um, and I think within a, within 100 Ks of that deposit, there's something like 18 mills, um, mid tiers operating. In fact, you know, they're, they're, you can tell in, in uh, uh, the operator's equity, there's there's a priced in some potential M&A activity because as that thing gets to a size, it would be potentially attracted to some of the operators in the region to pick it up and treat it through their own plants, which would accelerate, obviously, the, the timing of paying on the royalty. Now, we're not banking on that, but it's it's those sort of factors that you're looking into with regards to how defensive is this asset and what will the production profile look like? What is the certainty to it coming into production? That sort of thing. Right. Okay. I know we're in COVID times. Everything's being done online, but you're in Denver your markets in London, UK, you've got brokers that you need to um, speak to to encourage and get over the line in terms of pushing a royalty company, which we're not used to over here. We're just not. Anglo's been banging their head against the brick wall for the last two years. I know you've said there will be four of you in the market by the end of this year or thereabouts. Um, How much time, money and effort are you going to spend pushing your story here in London? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, it's a it's it consumes a large amount of time because there is a lot of education that needs to be done and getting the name out there. I mean, we're new; we're, we're only four months in the game, but um, but I think we're getting the traction. As I said, you, you if you look at our liquidity, you know, we, we've turned over over fifteen percent of the register in four months. So you you annualize that, and we're actually right alongside the majors and mid tiers in the space. Um, yeah, and, and that's being driven by largely UK retail. So it's. Yeah, it's, it's getting the name out there. As you said, the, the other guys getting listed will sort of help in that regard. We appointed, we have Tamasis as our as our broker in the UK. We appointed a joint, joint broker uh, and Shard to get them involved as well, to tap into other aspects of the market. Um, 
Yeah, we, we obviously got a PR firm engaged as well. So we're, we're doing everything you can on that front to get to get the name out there. And, and some of it is just going to be a, a time and proof of concept. You get the deals out there, you revisit with investors, you know, if they decline to get involved early on, once they see the deals you're doing and the, the response you're getting in the market, we circle back with them. And, and it, it's sort of the usual routine in that regard. But I think, um, you know, the early indications are, are positive in that sense. What timeline have you given yourself to see if the London market works for you? And what do you do if it doesn't? Yeah, well, we don't want to do sort of a fixed timeline. I think it, it's got to be sort of a rolling review. And I think it's something that both management and the board are sort of conscious of. And we're monitoring it closely. And um, and as I said early on, the indications are all positive. You know, if if for some reason it starts to move in the other direction, yeah, then, then you have to take action and figure out what, what you do from there. Yeah, as you've said, um, you know, peers have tried dual listing. Um, you can certainly explore that. There's a point where it's value creative, but there's also a point where it can be value destructive if you do that and it's not the right time and you only get one shot at that. So we're very conscious of that, but our priority now is deploying the capital, building out the portfolio. And if the market doesn't sort of follow it and come along for the ride, yeah, then, then we'll figure out what we need to do next. But as I said, early indications, four months in, share price up 50%, market giving us good liquidity. I mean, we're, we're seeing everything we need to see in that regard. Well, four months in, early days, everything's always shiny and new and people are paying attention mm -hmm. and then the shine wears off. My point is, how much planning have you guys done or do you think you should do for a you know what-if scenario, which is it's you know standard response from the uk with regards to a royalty company i no one's interested what are the options yeah i mean i think as i said we're sort of continually reviewing it um you know in terms of what we do we're, we're sort of scratching the surface on what about a tsx listing makes sense what an asx listing makes it makes sense but at the moment, because what you don't want to do is sort of limp onto one of these exchanges as, as a little junior with sort of modest cash flow. What you want to do is get to the size and scale where you're, you're when you're doing a dual listing, you're, you're coming on as a plus 100 million market cap company. You've got meaningful revenue. You're paying a dividend and then you're really making a splash. And then that becomes uh, an accretive uh, exercise for the shareholders of Trident. And that that's what we'd be looking to do. We, we don't want to sort of try to limp in uh, as a bit of a. That's a bit of an escape. It's it's got to be something that that drives value and, and makes sense. Right, and you've, you've got a, you've also got a, a, f a facility available to you. Are you under any pressure from them as to where you deploy your capital? Are there jurisdictions where you don't get? I, I kind of get the broad approach in terms of the commodities, but in mm -hmm. terms of jurisdictional risk, where you focus? Yeah, no, we're, we're wide open with regards to jurisdiction, which again is probably a bit of a differentiator from our peers. I mean, they, they will venture outside of North America, but but we'll look more broadly. I mean, and when it comes to the debt facility, you know, it comes down to jurisdiction. You know, Zambia, for example, the, the copper asset there, you know, Zambia may not register on most investors' sort of mindset in terms of a place they desperately want exposure. But that said, it's a common law country with with regards to the way they treat royalties. It can be tied to the tenement. It survives bankruptcy. All the things you want to see from a royalty perspective. So, and that, that's the stuff that debt providers will be looking at as well because they want to understand survivability, obviously in conjunction with the robustness of the assets. So, those two things sort of working in conjunction are are really what drive that conversation. Okay, Adam, exciting times for you guys. Uh, best of luck. We do like a royalty story. Um, yours is different. Nothing wrong with that. I just wanted to try and understand it. So come back on when you've got some, some more news, hopefully before the end of this year, and let us know how you're getting on. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? 
or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.